All right, if, you're, uh, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we are going to read together uh, from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of 9. It's a little bit of a longer reading today, but as I told you last week, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, verse uh, 29 was where Peter gave that great confession of faith. Uh, four words, the simplest creed, you are the Christ. And last week we looked at what came before it and how that helps us understand. Today we're going to look at what comes right after it and how it helps us understand. Uh, let me offer a word of prayer for the word and then we'll read together. God, please uh, illuminate your scriptures today. Light them up so that we would understand them and so that we would yield ourselves to you by hearing them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, uh, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would uh, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? Have you ever tripped over something? Everybody has, right? Uh, Think about it. When you tripped over something, whenever that was, hopefully it wasn't too recently, why did you trip over it? Uh, More than likely, you tripped over that thing because either A, you didn't see it there, you didn't see it coming, it just came out of nowhere seemingly, or B, you saw it but you underestimated its power to get you. Right? That's basically the two reasons. If you see it there and you rightly estimate its size and all that, you're probably not going to trip over it because you're either going to go around it or you're going to find a way to get over it. It's going to be fairly simple. We get surprised by what we don't expect, which is why we trip. Well, I want you to know the Bible uses that word trip or stumble about the gospel a lot of different times. Throughout the Bible, it says that the gospel is kind of like a stumbling block to people. It is is this thing that gets in the way sometimes, and if people aren't prepared for it, if they haven't truly estimated it rightly, they're going to fall over it. And here we see that same thing happening with Peter, right? He's just told us the gospel in four words. You are the Christ, the Messiah. I mean, what a wonderful thing to say about Jesus. And yet, immediately, Peter starts stumbling all over himself. One scene after the other, he stumbles over himself. And we have to assume that the other disciples were stumbling too, because Peter kind of stands for them, right? He's kind of the leader disciple. And yet, notice in the passage how tender Jesus is. He is there to meet the stumbling disciple, to pick them back up, and to refresh their vision of what the gospel really is. And so look at your bulletin today. I want to talk to you through three ways that the gospel makes people trip and what Jesus does about it, okay? Three ways the gospel makes you trip and what Jesus does about it when you do. Uh, These are the three ways. The necessity of the cross, the demands of discipleship, and the glory of Jesus. Let's talk about it. First of all, the necessity of the cross. Uh, There in verse 31, if you'll look at that again. No sooner had Peter given his confession that Jesus brings up his own death. And you can kind of see here, Jesus almost is like he's trying to get Peter to trip. Because right after Peter makes this great confession of faith, he brings up the one topic that he knows Peter's not going to get yet. And so he says to Peter and to the other disciples, it says he began to teach them, which means this is a theme he starts here, but he's going to keep on reiterating this theme over and over again throughout the rest of his life. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So not only will he suffer, but he must suffer. And not only must he suffer, he must suffer many things. And not only that, he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, by the 
head cheeses, right, by the VIPs. And not only that, but he must be killed. And he must stay dead for three days. I mean, nothing like a downer, Jesus. After the upper of Peter's great you are the Christ moment. Why would he do that? To underline the necessity of the cross from God's perspective. How do we know that? Because look at how Peter reacts. As soon as Jesus says this, verse 32, even though Jesus was speaking plainly, he was speaking plain Hebrew, plain English, right? There was nothing about what Jesus says that really is that mysterious. And yet Peter took him aside and and rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine? Peter rebukes Jesus. Uh, Matthew tells us a little bit about this dialogue. You know, Peter says in Matthew, Far be it from you, Lord. This will not happen to you, Peter says. And you can kind of get a window into why Peter is rebuking Jesus. Uh, Peter is thinking that when Jesus said you must suffer, he must be talking about, Well, I see, boys, everybody up there hates me, and so it's just inevitable I'm going to die. And Peter says, wait a minute, Jesus, you've got us. You've got your disciples. We're going to prevent this from happening. We're going to stand in the way and make sure this will never happen to you. You will not be killed. We will be your defenders. And then Jesus tells him what he really thinks. Look at it and ask yourself, has anybody ever called you Satan? Uh, my name is Stan, of course, and so sometimes when I type my name, it autocorrects to Satan. <laughs> Seriously, it really does. And even when that happens, and don't read too much into that, please, but even when that happens, it's just an autocorrect, I get a little offended by it. Like, wow, why would it think Stan is Satan? What? What? <laughs> Terrible. And I'm glad I've never sent an email, you know, before I called it, right? Sincerely, your pastor, Satan. That that would be very terrible. Even just the accident of thinking of myself as Satan offends me. I can't imagine if someone looked me in the eye and said, Stan, you are Satan. And yet, this is how serious Jesus takes Peter's misunderstanding. And he gives him the reason. Because you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter, you're judging what I said just on a human level. You think I mean I must die because look at how much they hate me. I'm saying I must die because God sent me to die. God sent me to die. That there's something about God's character that makes my death and my suffering for you Peter and for all my disciples necessary and I want to tell y'all right there is one of the chief stumbling blocks of the gospel right there right out of the gate Uh, we tend to wear crosses like they're gold jewelry right but let me tell you that's not what a cross was when Jesus was talking about a cross here Uh, The cross was the hangman's noose, the electric chair, the guillotine of the day. Can you imagine wearing a golden electric chair around your neck or giving one of those to your wife? Be weird. 
because it was an instrument of torture. And yet Jesus is saying, because of the character of God, the Son of God, when he comes into the world, has to endure that kind of torture for his people. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why in the world is that possible? I mean, what is it about the character of God that makes the cross necessary? And two things. You might want to write them down because these are big, big things about God that are very, very consistent throughout the Bible. On the one hand, there is his exact justice. God is a God of exact justice. Meaning God must give to everyone their due. He must give to everyone exactly what they deserve. Especially when they violate his law. And, and the Bible says that we as humans, including Peter here, including all of us, we have all violated God's law uh, in small ways, in, in big ways, and everything in between. We violated it in our hearts by our, what we think and what we feel. And we've also violated it in what we do and what we say and everything else. We, viol- we almost continually violate God's law by nature. And God is such a God of justice that he cannot look at that and say, oh, well. He cannot look at that and just wink his eyes and shrug his shoulders and nudge us and say, you know, boys will be boys. It's okay. I love you anyway. Kumbaya. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel has this offensive thing in the middle of it. God is a God of exact justice and you owe him big time. And I owe him big time. And he's coming after you and he's coming after me and he will get his payment. And so if he is to reconcile us to him as sons and daughters, he must send someone else to pay for us. And so Jesus uses the word must in that sense. I must die because I must have my people. Those dear ones that the Father had given to me before the world was made. Those dear sheep that I will save. I must die in order for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. The exact justice of God. But there's another thing. On the other hand, there's the rich grace of God. And you say, okay, well, that's good news, Stan. Exact justice, that was kind of, that's kind of tough. Rich grace, I'm all about that. Are you? Are you? Do you like being dependent on someone else in your life? Do you like getting handouts all the time? Do you like feeling like you're always on the take and never on the give? Does there, anybody actually like being in that position? Not much. Not many. Probably not you. And yet that's what rich grace means. <laughs> rich grace means that when God came to pay the debt that we owed to his exact justice, it was because God is so rich in mercy that he would reconcile us to himself without any cost to us in a way that we cannot ever earn and we cannot ever repay. That's humbling. And so you can see why Peter would be confused here, and you can see why many people don't ever accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Because the big stumbling block is I have to say, I am on the wrong side of God's justice. Ugh, I don't like to say that about myself. I've been wrong, galactically wrong. I've been wrong about God. Cosmically wrong. And at the same time, I have to say, oh, but I am dependent. Every good thing I've ever received and ever will receive is a gift. I haven't earned a bit of it. 
Man, you got to be humble to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Peter right here doesn't want to be humble, and we don't usually either. It's a process of learning how to humble ourselves before God. Isn't, it? Isn't that right? Peter wants to be the hero. Jesus, I will stand between you and the bad guys, and I will beat them for you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why don't you get behind and follow? Because where I'm leading is a place you never could have dreamed or imagined. A place where exact justice and rich grace are satisfied at the same time on the cross. Can you imagine it? Exact justice, rich grace, satisfied at the same time. Only the wisdom of God could have concocted that. By the way, I, you know, this is, you know, C.S. Lewis once said, this is one of the reasons I'm a Christian. He says, because reality is usually not something you could have guessed. You know, things that are real, things that, like, they say truth is stranger than fiction. That's true, right? The things that really happen are usually the things you couldn't have guessed. And he says, that's one of the reasons I believe in Christianity, because it's a religion you could not have guessed. You put people together in a room and say, hey, come up with a religion that suits you. And none of them are going to come up with Christianity. <laughs> because Christianity requires us to lay aside our pride. And that's the last thing I want to lay aside, right? That's the last thing Peter wanted to lay aside. He was a proud man. It would, in fact, take Peter all the way to that fateful night when he would deny Jesus three times. For him to truly get what Jesus was saying to him here. It sinks in slow, doesn't it? I think of grace, the grace of God sometimes like the sun. When it first comes into our lives, it's just a little dawn. We don't fully get it. We get it a little bit, but not fully. But as our life goes on, we ought to be getting it more and more. It ought to be coming to full noonday. And the only way that can happen is by you getting lower and lower and lower in yourself. Not saying you'll be down on yourself because you will be greatly encouraged by the grace of God in yourself, but it won't be because of you, right? You get what I'm saying? It will not be a self-esteem, self-made. It will be a confidence and an assurance that comes from knowing that the living God has laid his hands on you, which no human being can give you. You know that. No human being can give that to you. Only God can give that to you. That's the first thing, the great stumbling block of the necessity of the cross. But secondly, people tend to trip over the gospel because of the demands of discipleship. Uh, look at verses uh, 34 through 9-1. Uh, it says, after you know, Peter called, or Jesus called Peter Satan, he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, as soon as I read that, in my heart, there's a little bit of a jarring that happens, like a clash. Because Jesus has just told us that he must die. And so it's grace alone. It's the work of Jesus alone. And now he's saying, you can't be my disciple unless you too suffer and die on a cross. And we all want to yell out, which one is it, Jesus? Is it grace or is it works? Is it your cross or is it the cross I have to pick up? Y'all want to guess at what Jesus' answer is? Yes. Yes. 
in the right order, though. That's important. Listen, this is so important. In the right order. Um, this time of year, one of my favorite activities on Saturdays is watching college football. Mm-hmm. Yes. Today is a special day for me in that regard. Every, every year, Boston College, who we play as, at Florida State, we play them every year, uh, has a game called the Red Bandana Game. I don't know if you've ever seen this. They have it every year. A lot of times they play the Seminoles at that game, which is disappointing because they get really excited about that, and it's bad for us. But what that means is everybody in the stadium has red bandanas on. Uh, Their uniforms, usually the numbers are colored in with red bandana pattern. They sling red bandanas around. And it's all in honor of a man named Wells who used to wear a red bandana. And on September 11th, 2001, he was in the Twin Towers. He was not a first responder. He was just a regular guy. And he went around floor by floor rescuing people out. He rescued dozens of people, at least two dozen people. And they all remembered him. They didn't know his name, but they remembered him as the man with the red bandana. And every year, everybody puts on a red bandana to say thank you. And every time I watch that game, I mean, the stories always get tears from me, even though I've seen them a million times, because it's been 21 years since 9-11 now. And yet every year, the people are just as grateful that that man with a red bandana saved my dad or saved my sister or saved my brother or saved my son. I mean, it's amazing. Listen, the order matters. Wells wore a red bandana. They all wear a red bandana. Same red bandana. Very different red bandana. Don't you see it? And in a different order. He wore it first so that they could wear it second. He wore it so that they might live through his own death. They wear it just to say thank you. Do you get the point? Jesus says, I have a cross. It's a must. I come into this world and I must go to the cross. Jesus says to all of his followers, you have a cross and it's also a must. But it's not a saving cross. It's not a redeeming cross. That's my cross. Your cross is to show how grateful you are for my cross. Because the, and by cross, Jesus doesn't mean, again, putting on a piece of jewelry. He means denying yourself daily to follow him. That's wearing the cross. It's not a physical thing. It's not a tattoo or a piece of jewelry. It's an actual state of the heart where you are denying yourself to give it all to him. That is the way that we are called to give our thanks to what Jesus did every single day. Every day is a red bandana day. Every day is a cross day for a Christian. That's what he's saying. We're not saved by our works. Not a single work that you ever do will get you into heaven. It won't even help you. It would hurt you if it were laid against you. But all the works that you're called to do are works that give pleasure to Almighty God because he loves you as a father. (laughs) And because when he sees them, he, he smells the sweet smell of gratitude. He smells the sweet smell of a heart made holy by the blood of his dear son. Every year at the Red Bandana game, Wells' mom and dad are there. And every year they're bawling. Can you imagine being them, seeing that whole crowd with your son's bandana? And that's the father when he sees his people living for Jesus. 
Now, shouldn't a true Christian want to do that? That's the demand of discipleship. And yet we don't, we don't want it. We think, oh, man, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want to do. We don't know the first thing about grace, if that's what we think. I mean, what a crazy way to think, that the only reason to do good is because that's the way you get to heaven? What? Isn't it good to do good because it's good? And isn't it good to do good because it gives the Father pleasure? And is that not why Jesus Christ himself died? And so Jesus helps the disciples see this. You know, this is a big stumbling block, and so he wants to give them some pros and cons. And I'll just quickly show you uh, there in verse 35. He gives the first pro and con. Whoever would save his life in this world will lose it. But if you lose your life in this world for my sake and the gospels, you'll save it. That's a pro and con. If you try to live your own life for yourself, if you don't deny yourself, you will die in the end. But if you deny yourself, you'll live forever. That's a pretty good deal. Verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? You could even gain the entire world. You could win the Powerball. But what good would it do you if you lost your soul? What good would it do you if you lost your soul, he says? What can a man give in return for his soul? And yet what Jesus has done is he's given you your soul back. What is it to deny the whole world? That's pretty good pro and con. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. I mean, think about it. What a trade. Do you want to be in line with a sinful and adulterous generation against Jesus? Or do you want to be for Jesus against a sinful and adulterous generation? It's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple uh, choice to make. Jesus is outlining all the motivational reasons why a Christian ought to want to yield every part of his or her life to, to Jesus. Out of gratitude, because it is a good deal, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> to put it in a crass way. You're never losing when you lose for Jesus. And you say, well, how do we have to lose for Jesus? Well, think about it. Just denying yourself every day. Uh, sometimes you need to stand up for Jesus when people don't want you to. It's costly. Uh, sometimes you need to just tell yourself no, things you want that Jesus doesn't want you to have. And it's hard to tell yourself no. If you don't think it's hard, you've never tried. Try it out. Try it this week. Pick one thing to tell yourself no about and report back. It's tough. It's a death. And Jesus says, if you do it, you're on my side. If you do it, you're like me. If you do it, the Father smiles. Do it. It's beautiful. Wow. We stumble over the cross. We stumble over the demands. But finally this morning, look at the last thing. We stumble over the glory of Christ. We stumble over glory. Look there. At, uh, you, you guys probably, most of you know the story of the transfiguration. We're going to go really quickly through this story. Certainly we could see, we could preach a series of sermons on it, but I'm just going to give you a little five minutes on it here. Jesus takes Peter and James and John to the mountain, and boom, he shows who he really is. It's like he takes off the veil. To show the real Jesus there, the, the Son of God shining. I love how it puts it. Uh, his clothes were as white as no launderer on earth could bleach them. Shoo. Matthew says he shined like the sun. Woo. You know? 
And the disciples, again, are stumbling all over it. They're like, what do we do with this? What do we do? It says uh, Peter didn't know what to say because he was scared. And so Peter did what he does every time he doesn't know what to say. He says something. <laughs> right? That's, that's Peter, right? Maybe you're like Peter. I know I can be like that. When I don't know what to say, the first thing I do is I say something and put my foot in my mouth. Well, he does that. He says, Rabbi, oh, it's good for us to be here, right? Good for us to be here. Let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. We can hang out here for a while. And this time it's God the Father who comes and <laughs> breaks apart Peter's delusions by bringing a cloud and a voice. This is my beloved son. This is my one and only. Then what does it say? Listen to him. Do you see it? Listen to him. Wow. And then it says, they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus, what's the word? Only. And that is the stumbling block of the glory of Christ. People stumble over it all the time. The disciples did. We do. People are searching for meaning in life, aren't they? People are searching for big meaning, transcendent meaning, which is a fancy word of saying it's bigger than me. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. Everybody's searching for that. But the Bible says offensively that there's only one place to find that. You can't find it anywhere except in Jesus Christ. You won't find it in anything else. Everything else is a fake imitation. Jesus alone. That's offensive. And then when we do get to Jesus and we really see him as he is, we're offended because, lo and behold, the transcendent is actually transcendent. Uh, lo and behold, the great one is actually greater than we are. And we don't even know what to say in his presence. And we're uncomfortable being in the presence of someone so great, and so we draw back. You remember those train sets that had the the little metal magnets on each end, and you would click them together with magnets. What, what would happen when you turned the engine around backwards and tried to connect it with the next car? Yeah, that's right. And instead of coming together, it goes, Foof! In fact, it's kind of fun when you do it because you can actually send the, the engine going on its own because, the, because when a magnet's poles aren't aligned right, it repels rather than retracts. Those train cars are a great picture of our hearts and the glory of God. As long as we remain faced towards ourselves, towards what we want, towards life our way, we are repelled by something so magnificent and so exclusive. We don't want Jesus only. We, we want to diversify our spiritual portfolio, <laughs> right? Smart finances. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. We want to get a little bit here, a little bit there. Repelled. We don't want a transcendent thing that's actually transcendent. I mean, that means I can't understand it. That means I can't predict it. That Wow, I'm scared. I don't want that. Repel. But if you were to take the train car and flip it back the right way, what would happen? Attract. And the Bible says that flipping of the train is what is repentance. 
It's how you start the Christian life. And by the way, y'all, it's how you live it every day is repenting. You're flipping the train car of your heart so that instead of being repelled by the glory of Jesus, you're actually attracted by it. You begin to want it more. In fact, the more, the more you see of the glory of Christ like this, the more you want him. The more you hear the Father say, this is my one and only. And you start to think about what does it mean for the Father in heaven to have a one and only and how good must he be? He starts to become your one and only. In fact, I'll tell you, if you come to Jesus today, i got one promise for you. He'll ruin everything else. He'll ruin, the rest of, he'll, he'll ruin your life. You say, well, what do you mean? Nothing else will taste the same again. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Some of y'all might not yet know what I'm talking about, but you can know. He will taste so sweet that nothing will quite taste the same again. But you'll be okay with it. You'll be happy about it. But again, grace is like a, the rising of the sun. When you first become a Christian, you know so very little of it. it it's like a dawning, it's just a barely dawning day. But as you grow, and, and boy, should you ever grow every day. As you grow, the sun is rising to full noon. You're seeing more of the glory of Jesus. You're wanting it more. You're turning your heart, repenting more so that you are not repelling as much as you are attracting. Now, last thing. This is in closing. I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1. It's later in the New Testament, towards the end of the Bible. Because somebody might say, Great, Stan, I was not on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. So what good is all this for me? I haven't seen the glory of Jesus like this, and I probably never will. Au contraire, my friend. Listen to what Peter says, Peter, same Peter, later in his life. Starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now listen. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did you just hear what Peter said? Because it will change your life if you heard it. Did you understand it? He said, we were on the mountain and we heard and we saw, but guess what? Y'all have got something better. Y'all have the completed prophetic word that the Holy Spirit breathed out. You can look into that word anytime and the Holy Spirit will show you Jesus, just like we saw him. You will hear in, the, in your heart, I'm not saying audibly, I'm not saying you'll see a vision, but you'll hear it in your heart from the scripture. 
This is my son. I love him, and I want you to love him as much as I do. Listen to him. You'll begin to taste his glory. The sun will come up at first like a little little slither uh, over the horizon. And then the morning star will rise to noonday as you read, reflect, meditate on, enjoy God in the scriptures. That's what Peter's teaching. You say, well, I don't know if I believe it. How about trying it? Before you make that conclusion, how about trying it? You say, well, I've tried it. I've read the Bible. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe you probably have. Have you ever read it consistently? Have you ever read it prayerfully? Asking, expecting that the Holy Spirit really can show you Jesus? Have you ever read all of it? I would encourage you. Go up the mountain. That's essentially what Peter's saying. He says, when you go to read your Bible, you're going up the mountain with Jesus. Get ready. When you come to church, you're going up the mountain with Jesus. We're going together. Get ready. My prayer for you is that on Saturday night, you wouldn't be able to sleep. Because you're excited to go up the mountain again with Jesus with me and with each other. For real. Because there we see a glory that, yeah, people stumble over. Many people in the world stumble. But what a beautiful thing to the humble heart that the cross is necessary. The demands of discipleship are sweet. And the glory is unmatched. And I'm so thankful for it. Amen.